Another thing to note when looking at workforce development in the current moment is that workforce development plays a role not only in attracting and skilling new workers, but in upskilling and retaining workers. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 297 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we'll be talking about workforce development. As we'll discuss later in the show, we feel this is an area where learning businesses have a very important role to play, and playing that role could open up opportunities that many learning businesses are not currently aware of or pursuing. Before we get to that, though, we'll note that workforce development can be a fairly complex topic to understand, so we want to start by defining our terms. What do we mean when we say workforce development? Workforce development encompasses the services, programs, systems, and networks that provide people with education, skills development, and improved access to employment and advancement in the labor market to achieve overall maximum sustainable economic growth. All right, now I can take a breath. That was a pretty long definition there. (laughs) It's based on a a definition of workforce development used by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And you can count on Federal Reserve Banks for those sorts of concise definitions. (laughs) That one was definitely thorough. It was also pretty broad. It mentioned means, so services, programs, systems, and networks. And those means are for providing various things, education, skills, skills development, and improved access to employment and advancement in the labor market. And all of that with the end goal of maximum sustainable economic growth. And part of what we like about that definition from the St. Louis Fed is precisely that broadness, because its broadness means it can be used to describe the activities done by the various players in workforce development and it covers the range of perspectives represented by those players. So let's talk a little bit about those different perspectives. Education providers, uh, and that includes K-12, higher ed, and learning businesses, those education providers and social service providers tend to approach workforce development and develop programs from the perspective of the sustainable economic security of the individual. Education providers think about the individual learner and her attainment and her opportunities. The idea behind the individual perspective of workforce development programs is that individuals won't be able to make substantive contributions to society without access to training and education. And I think most learning businesses would agree that they're performing important work in educating and training people. Another component of this individual view of workforce development is the recognition that an individual's basic needs must be met for her to contribute to society. So social services and community supports figure in, along with job training and education, to position an individual for success in the workforce. Now, in in contrast to that individual-oriented view, Employers tend to approach workforce development from an organizational perspective, focusing on the skills and training that their specific organization needs to be or to remain competitive, or more broadly, the skills and training needed by their industry or their profession. And then communities and economic developers are a third group of players in workforce development. Communities and economic developers tend to approach 
workforce development from the perspective of what benefits the sustainable economic growth of a community or region. Workforce development from the community perspective tends to focus on initiatives that educate and train individuals to meet the current and future needs of businesses and industries in a region. So whereas education and service providers center the individual and employers center their organization, this perspective is driven by the economic development plan for a region, which is often a state in the U.S. So that community perspective means that workforce development initiatives tend to emphasize local or regional needs. And in some ways, that can be good. Uh, that tighter geographic focus makes communication and coordination among the, the major players a bit easier. In other ways, though, the regional or local focus can really be limiting when we think about the global nature of much of the economy these days and the growing prevalence of remote work, which means workers and their employers don't necessarily live in the same region. And I'll add to remote work the growth of a more nomadic workforce. If they can work remotely, workers don't necessarily have to stay in one area and they can move around while remaining employed at the same employer. And these more recent trends towards remote work, towards a more nomadic workforce, I think are very interesting to consider in light of the fact that workforce development tends to be decentralized by nature. Workforce development tends to be more interested in Main Street or really multiple Main Streets across the country versus being aligned tightly with just Wall Street. And when thinking about these various perspectives on workforce development, in an ideal scenario, the individual, organizational, and the regional perspectives would have significant overlap. You know, if you think of a Venn diagram, you know, these would be three circles that almost sit on top of one another. Right. And so that's a, a good overview of, you know, what workforce development is, uh, who the, the major players tend to be. But it's probably worth it to add some details to that definition, some context, by taking a little bit of a detour into U.S. history. And we'll start back at the New Deal, the, the legislation under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's commonly viewed as the start of federal workforce development legislation. You know, during the Great Depression, of course, Employment in the U.S. fell to an all-time low, and so, you know, Roosevelt initiated and Congress enacted programs designed to provide employment assistance and create jobs in both urban and rural areas while building the nation's infrastructure. And the, the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, was part of the New Deal, and it increased spending on public projects to provide those jobs. And during the eight years that the program existed, it generated more than 8.5 million jobs nationwide. So that was kind of unprecedented to take that kind of initiative as part of a public project. So if we jump from those origins in the 1930s to more recent times, President Clinton signed the Workforce Investment Act in 1998. That was passed during a period of full employment. So very different economic times than when the New Deal came to be. The Workforce Investment Act, WIA for short, focused on the delivery of workforce development programs and services through a nationwide network of community-based one-stop career centers. 
the idea was give individuals a single location where they can go and access workforce programs and services. We created workforce investment boards led by businesses to develop local strategies based on labor market data and to oversee programs in their communities. So continuing on through time in this tour of workforce development history, in 2014, President Obama signed the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, or WIOA, which reauthorized the workforce investment system and replaces the Workforce Investment Act of 1998. And WIOA took effect on July 1st, 2015, and states and local workforce development boards are still in the act of implementing it to the present day. So to sum up, Workforce development involves many players and stakeholders, government, employers, communities, and individuals. And workforce development is a prime example of tying education to outcomes. In the context of workforce development, training and education and learning are all about preparing individuals for good jobs. We're grateful to Bench Prep for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. Bench Prep is an award-winning learning platform purpose-built to help learners feel confident and prepared to take difficult entrance, certification, and licensing tests by delivering an intuitive, efficient, and engaging study experience. Bench Prep helps you accelerate test prep revenue growth by offering the tools you need to create market-ready products and data to improve your content and understand learner behavior. Many of the world's leading associations, credentialing bodies, test providers, and training companies trust Bench Prep to power their online study programs, including ACT, the Association of American Medical Colleges, CFA Institute, CompTIA, GMAC, McGraw-Hill Education, AccessLex, and more. More than 8 million learners have used Bench Prep to attain academic and professional success. To discover more, visit leadinglearning.com slash benchprep. Let's move on from the definition and that brief history lesson and look at workforce development today and the role and opportunity for learning businesses. When we think about jobs and the current moment, my mind immediately goes to the great resignation or the big quit or the great reconsideration, whatever you want to call it. This is the fact that a record-breaking 47.4 million people quit their job in 2021. The pandemic has been a major driver of the quitting. You know, folks, for example, who had to quit to stay home with children doing school remotely or folks who quit to limit their exposure and chances of being infected. But I think to only look at COVID is is to miss the bigger picture. Yeah, I think that's really important. You, you mentioned the great reconsideration as one of the names being given to this phenomenon. And I think that speaks to the revaluation that many workers are doing of their jobs and, and their, their work life. We know low wages and new career goals have driven some of the resignations, and and those are the kinds of things workforce development can help with. One of the big goals of workforce development is good jobs. Right. It's not any job or, or jobs at any cost. The goal is good jobs, high quality jobs. 
I recently read an article from the Center for American Progress. It was a December 2021 article that makes this point precisely. It, you know, it says the U.S. isn't facing a labor shortage. The U.S. is facing a good jobs shortage. That's right. You know, even before the pandemic, a lot of workers were dealing with low or stagnant wages, unpredictable schedules, and undesirable working conditions, and, you know, often going without benefits like health care and paid family and medical leave. And the number of good jobs really has been declining for decades, if you look at something like the, the U.S. private sector job quality index. And of course, this talk of good jobs brings us back to definitions because opinions on what constitutes a good, high-quality job differ. The Job Quality Index that you just mentioned, Jeff, really just looks at money, specifically the weekly income a job generates for an employee. A September 2020 report from the Center for American Progress asserts that we need to go beyond just income, and it defines good jobs as the kind of jobs that afford economic security and participation in civic life, as opposed to occupations that require a few skills, pay low wages, or are vulnerable to outsourcing. And of course, job quality probably should also take into account things like worker safety, commute time, working environment, the right to unionize, and even things like equal pay and protection from discrimination. Yeah, and there is a push for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and you know a real focus on DEI in workforce development. And this is where that societal or community perspective we talked about really comes into play. Yes, we want workforce development to provide individuals with jobs, and we want to provide employers with workers, but communities can really value that diversity, equity, and inclusion piece. A senior fellow for workforce development at the Center for American Progress wrote a February 2022 article that points to the fact that construction and other industries that are supported by the recent bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act face labor shortages. You know, that that act allocated $1.2 trillion toward repairing the transportation system, ensuring access to clean water, connecting people to high-speed broadband in the U.S., and more. And that senior fellow asserts that workforce development systems can help narrow that gap, that labor shortage, by supporting efforts to bring in women and workers of color into these industries like construction where they're typically underrepresented. You know, and she makes the point that workforce development alone is not going to, you know, solve systemic inequities in the labor market, but it has the potential to create uh, an environment in which those problems aren't perpetuated and, and connect job seekers to good jobs and help employers meet their labor needs. We'll include in the show notes links to a couple of February 2022 articles written by Marina Javorenkova, who's that senior fellow for workforce development at the Center for American Progress that Salisa mentioned. So be sure to check out the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 297. Another thing to note when looking at workforce development in the current moment is that workforce development plays a role not only in attracting and skilling new workers, but in upskilling and retaining workers. And when the labor market is as tight as it is now, the retaining piece becomes as important and valuable as the attracting piece, especially to employers. 
Now is the part of the show where we get on our partnership soapbox again and recommend that your learning business take the time and energy and money to invest in finding and forming appropriate and valuable partnerships. In the case of workforce development, if you're going to be an education provider in that realm, then close alignment with employers in your industry, field, or profession is absolutely essential. Definitely. And that alignment really is part of your marketing, that that big picture marketing that goes far beyond just promotion. That alignment with employers is a big part of how you know that the products and services you offer will be seen as valuable. And if you can go beyond alignment with employers to actual partnerships, then you're making the design and development of new products much less risky. You know, depending on the the nature of the partnership, you may be sharing design and development costs with an employer partner, or you may be pre-selling to that employer partner. So you go into design and development knowing that you've got a B2B, a business-to-business sale already guaranteed. And... To be honest, whether what you're doing, quote, counts as workforce development or not, that work to align with or to partner with employers is valuable. It'll be useful broadly in your learning business because it keeps you connected to the industry or profession that you're serving. Yeah, definitely. And and it's something, you know, that just over years of experience in working with organizations, we haven't seen enough, you know, really intentional efforts to communicate with employers, understand their needs, and and use that, uh, you know, as the basis for creating products that you know there is demand for out in the marketplace. You know, I spoke to Claire Marsh, uh, Senior Vice President of Training and Development at ABA, the American Bankers Association, recently for the podcast. And, you know, she talked about how close they are to the banks, meaning, you know, the employers in ABA's field. They offer in-bank learning programs, and they work closely with their members to create programs, and that keeps them aligned with employers, and that's something most trade and professional associations can certainly do, you know, make use of their members to get and to stay connected with employers. And Claire also pointed out that one of the important things she and her team do is seed the market for future bankers. ABA has relationships with a number of colleges, universities, community colleges, and educational organizations that are focused on minority communities to spread knowledge of the banking industry to the next generation of workers who are currently students. So ABA is, you know, both looking to professionalize banking, but also to seed the market for future bankers. Well, you know, and what you shared there, Jeff, you know, I heard the DEI focus come up, you know, ABA partnering with education providers that are focused on minority communities. That's an example of the diversity, equity, and inclusion focus of workforce development. Given the benefits of partnering and working with employers, you know, I always am sort of left wondering why it doesn't happen more. And I think at least part of the answer is just the time and effort required. You know, to first figure out potential partners can be hard and time consuming. You have to identify employers, find contacts there. You got to meet with them. You got to discuss opportunities. And this reminds me that, you know, when I spoke with Lowell Applebaum for the podcast, he talked about the need for potential partners to come into discussions with open minds. If you're looking for a partner to do or be X or Y or Z, 
you're likely going to be disappointed because what are the odds of finding a partner, you know, to check all of your boxes? And even if you can find one of those, you know, you're likely to miss out on the full potential of the partnership because you won't know what else the partner can do beyond X or Y or Z. Yeah, I mean, it's so right. The time and energy and open-mindedness required for effective partnerships are barriers. You know, a lot of organizations are resource-strapped, a lot are kind of rigid in their thinking. It can be, as you said, time-consuming to find and then maintain partnerships with employers. But, you know, they're really worth taking on because the potential is just so huge. We know that a learning business alone is not going to be able to achieve and accomplish as much as a learning business working with partners can. That's just a fact. And I'll put a a teaser in here and say that we're going to air another interview soon that gets into workforce development. So we'll have more real world examples beyond what you already shared about Claire and ABA, Jeff. So listeners, stay tuned. Yeah, do stay tuned. And in the meantime, we invite and encourage you to take some time to reflect. You know, what role does your learning business play in attracting and educating workers new to the field, industry, or profession you serve? What role might your learning business play? There may be opportunities to revisit and refine what you offer to add new offerings. How clear are you on the needs of the employers in your field, industry, or profession? When was the last time you verified those needs? Make sure to avail yourself of relevant existing research and or conduct your own research. In terms of existing research, I'll mention Georgetown University's Center on Education and the Workforce as a good potential resource. Yeah, the CEW is always a great resource. They issued a report at the end of 2020 called Workplace Basics, the Competencies Employers Want. And that report explores how 120 knowledge areas, skills, and abilities are demanded across the workforce and within specific occupations, and how the intensity with which workers use these competencies, along with their education level, can affect their earnings. So that may be a specific resource to check out, and of course, we'll include a link to it in the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 297. Those 120 knowledge area skills and abilities mentioned in that report, they cover a wide range from things like leadership, teamwork, communication, to health sciences and engineering, to fine motor skills and vision and hearing. And the center's research found that general cognitive competencies, so communication, teamwork, sales and customer service, those were more highly valued, i.e., more highly paid than physical competencies like strength and coordination in the labor market. So that's just a little tidbit from that report to to maybe heighten your interest in checking it out. Right. And, you know, along with cultivating deeper understanding of employer needs, we'd encourage you to think through the implications and opportunities of some recent and still unfolding trends. You know, we've mentioned remote work and more nomadic workers and We've touched on the need for good jobs uh, that the great resignation points to. Automation through AI and, and other tech is, you know, obviously another phenomenon. So take the time at your learning business to reflect on these and other trends and think about what these trends mean for skill gaps, for upskilling and for reskilling and for the role that your learning business could potentially play in this world of workforce development. 
That's our look at workforce development and the opportunity for learning businesses. For full show notes and other resources to help you think about your learning business's role in workforce development, please visit leadinglearning.com slash episode 297. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 297, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we do hope you will subscribe if you haven't yet. Subscription numbers give us some visibility into the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 297, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.